Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us in our adult Sunday school hour. We're going to be continuing our study through systematic theology. We are currently on the topic of eschatology, and today we're going to be in part two, and we're going to be discussing personal eschatology. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll dive right in. Heavenly Father, we recognize that this morning we're going to be talking about um, realities and realms that we cannot see, but God, you see these things clearly, and you have revealed them to us in your word to know and to believe. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to um, stare squarely at these truths, to see the wonders and the woefulness of these realities, and that it would be anchored to our hearts and minds so that we might respond in worship to you, God. You are a great God and worthy of all praise, and we ask for your help this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The story of Scripture is God's story, and he has written it down for us to know and delight in. And like every story, there's a beginning, there's a crisis, a resolution, and an end. And in the beginning, God's word says, God created everything out of nothing, This is referred to as creation, and after he created everything, he called it very good, and mankind sinned. We disobeyed God's good rules, and this is referred to in Genesis 3 um, often as the fall, the fall of man. It brought a curse of sin and death upon ourselves, but God provided a way that we could be restored or brought back together to be redeemed, and this is referred to as redemption. Jesus, the Son of God, came in flesh died on the cross to pay for our sins, and he offers for everyone who believes in him eternal life. Eternal life with God. And that is the final stage with which we're talking about in eschatology. This is referred to as the consummation or the culmination or restoration. This is the coming together of all the promises of God. This is God's people dwelling with God himself in God's perfect place. This is the study of the future. This is the study of what God promises to complete. And we're looking to understand how the story of Scripture, that is God's story, ends. So pay attention with me. There's a lot of content. For some of you, it'll be new information. For some of you, it may be familiar. But we want to make sure that we're not just looking for mere information, but we're looking to be transformed by God's Word through the power of His Spirit to glorify His great name. So as we look into the future, typically in systematic theology, we're actually looking at two separate topics. There's the topics of personal eschatology and the topics of cosmic, as Scott mentioned in our first introductory lesson. Cosmic seeks to understand what is the destiny of all things? What are the global events that scripture tells us are going to play out? And today we're going to be not talking about cosmic primarily, we're going to be talking about the personal aspect of eschatology that scripture does discuss. That is, what is a person's personal destiny? So in this topic, we're going to talk about um, four specific headers. Um, so under personal eschatology, which is not as frequently talked about, a lot of times when people mention eschatology, you're thinking about the tribulation and millennial kingdom and all these big events. But today we're going to be talking about topics such as death. What happens according to scripture when we die? What is the intermediate state that we see described in Scripture? What about this idea of resurrection? What happens when people are resurrected? And lastly, we'll talk about briefly the eternal state. Where is people's final destination according to Scripture? Scripture answers each of these topics 
in actually a twofold manner. So we can actually replicate these columns into two different areas. Scripture is going to describe for us both how a believer relates to death, the intermediate state, resurrection, and eternal state. And also what Scripture describes for unbelievers. So as we go through these topics, you'll see this twofold description of how Scripture describes these topics. So let's dive into our first topic together. First, we're going to discuss the topic of death. Death, although it is an unpleasant topic, uh, we all recognize the blunt reality of death based on our life experiences with the loss of loved ones. Every anniversary, we recognize this reality of um, loss. But only Scripture reveals to us the actual origin of death, the significance of death, and what must happen for death to actually be defeated. Before we talk about those topics, though, we want to understand this word death in Scripture. Scripture actually uses death in three different types of language. The first type of death that Scripture refers to is the one that we commonly know as physical death. Physical death involves uh, the ceasing of bodily life, very basically. When key organs of the body actually stop functioning, physical death occurs. This is when a separation happens between a person's body and their spirit. And James makes this clear in James chapter 2, verse 26. He said, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead. So James actually uses this as a basic and universal aspect, uh, a universal statement that was meant to be understood. So this ought to be rudimentary and definitional to our understanding of physical death. Physical death is not a ceasing of existence. It's not a non-existence like the world wants us to understand it to be. But rather, it's the spirit separating or departing from the body. Ecclesiastes 12.7 says it this way, And the dust, referring to our, our physical bodies, returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. But scripture also describes a second death. It refers to a spiritual death. Spiritual death involves alienation or separation from God. Death, at its basic definition, we would say, is the absence of life. And since God is the source of all life, to be in rejection of God and his authority is biblically described as death, to be separate from the God of life. So, for example, a person can be physically alive, but spiritually dead. Scripture teaches that we are all physically born spiritually dead because of the fall in Genesis 3 that we referenced. King David understood this personally when he confessed in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. But Paul would address this in the New Testament as well, and he referred to spiritual death when he wrote to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 1. He said, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So we see both physical death and spiritual death mentioned in Scripture, but the third death that Scripture talks about is an eternal death. Eternal death is in Scripture is referred to as a punishment and banishment from God forever. This death is for those who physically die while being spiritually dead. The unrepentant will experience eternal conscious separation from God's presence to bless them. And 2 Thessalonians 1.9 describes it this way. He says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Thankfully, God has saved some from this eternal death. Those who believe in Jesus will escape this judgment. 
Secondly, about death, we want to talk about some, some truths, five truths specifically that Scripture mentions about the topic of death. As earlier we mentioned, what is the origin of death? Well, Scripture says that sin is the cause of death. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. MacArthur and Mayhew say it this way, At its core, death is a spiritual matter with wide-ranging and far-reaching consequences. Secondly, Scripture is very clear that death is real. Death is not something that's an illusion. It's an actual separation of the body from the soul. Thirdly, we would say, according to Scripture, that death is unnatural. This means that God did not create man to die. Oftentimes in Scripture, we find sorrow or mourning and tears associated with death. And Jesus himself uh, wept for Lazarus when he died. But we have to understand death disrupts life. It shouldn't be glamorized, and it also shouldn't be downplayed either. And although in our fallen world it can seem common, it is outside God's created design for man. And according to Revelation, uh, death will not be present in the final state of the new heavens and the new earth that we'll talk about later. Fourthly, from Scripture, we would see that death ensures accountability to our Creator. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Heaven is not a default destiny. For those who are unbelievers, death should be a fearful thing and should be a catalyst for all to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And lastly, the fifth point we would say according to scriptures that death is a transition from one state of existence to another. Again, death does not cause non-existence. We haven't got that point. Should be crystal clear by now, but it's it's really important for us to to grasp that. That's not what scripture teaches. Rather, believers will depart from uh, to an intermediate state of heaven where God is for believers and the resurrected Jesus and angels and previously deceased believers reside according to Revelation. And non-believers, rather, after death, will depart to Hades, which is a temporary place of punishment for the wicked before they are finally cast into the eternal destination of the lake of fire. So for an unbeliever, death is to be viewed as dreadful. Proverbs 11.7 says, The wicked dies and his hope will perish. For the believers, though, death is something that's actually viewed as desirable. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, he says, My desire is to depart, that is to, to pass away, to be with Christ, for that is far better, he says. Although death is a result of sin, Christians do not have to fear death because our sins are forgiven. And Christ has conquered death. That's why Paul triumphantly writes in Romans chapter 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor anything else in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But our question moving on from here is what happens after death? I think we're familiar with this topic at least and understand what scripture says about death, but let's look at a general timeline together to gauge what scripture is describing happening for those who are actually absent from the physical body. Again, this is going to be a timeline for personal eschatology, so Quick disclaimer before we view it is that it's not going to have every cosmic event going on, uh, but this, this first red line that we see is going to represent human existence. And as we've seen in our study already through systematic theology, mankind is a created being, which means we have a beginning. God is not created. He is eternal. 
And he created us as spiritually, one-directionally eternal. That means we have a starting point and we continue on. But we are distinct from God in that way because God is two-directionally eternal, meaning he has no beginning and he has no end. He has always been and always will be. He alone is the great I am. But we have a starting point that often we refer to as our birth or being born. Technically, you could accurately say um, and biblically say at conception. But the next large event in our life, believe it or not, is when we die from a personal eschatology standpoint. And we refer to this as life, right? This is the state of life that we often refer to. But the next state after being born and then dying would be, um, the next big event would be the resurrection and judgment. And this in-between state is referred to as the intermediate state. And there's events that go on um, in the intermediate state that we would refer to later in cosmic, which would be the rapture, uh, the tribulation period, and the millennial kingdom, which we'll talk about later. But overall, we're just going to kind of call this big bracket the intermediate state for today, and we're going to talk about that more in detail. After the intermediate state, though, we would go into what, would, what Scripture describes as the eternal state. And this is not necessarily proportionate on the scale for those of you that don't remember your geometry. The little arrow means that it actually continues on. And on. And on. And on. Okay, so we get it, right? This is the eternal state. This never ends. And that's something that for believers is a joy that we look forward to. That our life now is short and brief compared to the eternity that Christ has purchased for us with his precious blood. So before we get to the eternal state, we're going to talk about that in-between state referred to as the intermediate state. Again, that's between when someone dies and when this idea of resurrection in Scripture is mentioned. So that's the in-between or the intermediate state that we're going to be referring to. And this is referred to in Scripture as a conscious existence of people between physical death and the resurrection of the body. This state of being applies to both believers and unbelievers, although the residence is distinct during this state. Let's look at how both the Old Testament and the New Testament describe this state right after death for both the wicked and the righteous. First, we'll look at the Old Testament and what words are used to describe those who die. So in the Old Testament, referring to Korah's rebellion in Numbers 1630, uh, Moses is writing and he says, But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens up its mouth and swallows them up, With all that belongs to them, they will go down alive into what Moses, the word is Sheol. So it seems like there's these wicked people rebelling against Moses who's given God's authority, and their judgment is to go down to Sheol. So that seems to be where Scripture says the wicked go. Um, Also in Psalm 31, 17, the author, the psalmist writes, O Lord, let me not be put to shame. This is David speaking. For I call upon you. And he says, let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. So it seems to indicate that the wicked, their destination after death is Sheol. So that's the biblical word. But what about um, Old Testament saints? Where does scripture indicate that Old Testament saints go after they die? Well, in Genesis um, 37, 42, and 44, Jacob multiple times indicates where he would go when he would die. If you remember when um, he found out his other brother's Um, sold Joseph into slavery, and they told their dad that he was mauled, that he was killed by an animal. And he was mournful, and he said, now I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. And so he indicated that his state, he would go down to Sheol in his grief, he said that. 
And also King David indicated that he himself would go to Sheol. In 2 Samuel 22, um, he says, the cords of Sheol entangle me is the phrase he used. So it seems like in the Old Testament, unbelievers went to Sheol and believers would also go to this place they refer to as Sheol. Psalm 16.10, King David also famously wrote, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So the Old Testament scriptures seem to indicate that both an unbeliever and believers go to this place, Sheol. So based on these verses, um, it would be best to define the Old Testament term Sheol as the realm of the dead. According to the Old Testament authors, they viewed this as a place where both the wicked and the righteous went after death. So what about the New Testament? How does the New Testament refer to this realm of the dead? Well, in the New Testament, the Greek term that's word is Hades. And we know this for sure because Peter actually is quoting that verse we just referenced, um, Psalm 16. He's referencing and preaching, and when he's saying this verse and saying that it refers to Christ, he says in Acts 2.27, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, he says, or let your Holy One see corruption. So, In the Old Testament, they said Sheol. In the New Testament, they used the Greek word Hades. So that helps us to understand, okay, Hades is equivocal to Sheol because they're using the same word for it. So it helps us to understand that that's what's being used. So the New Testament exclusively uses Hades, though, in reference to place where those who reject Christ go after they die. So what does this mean in regards to the righteous? Do the righteous go to this place of Hades and this place of torment? How do we kind of reconcile this? Well, Quickly, I'd like to just review and understanding what happens in the New Testament. So sometimes we flip our page from the last book of the Old Testament into the the first book, and we kind of think that there's this big pivotal moment. And there is in the fact that the incarnation happens, but there's a huge shift just 33 years later in the fact that Christ died and rose again. That's a huge pivotal moment. So for those first several years, we have to understand that all those saints at that time are really Old Testament saints. Um, they're, they're, so John the Baptist, for example, is an Old Testament saint because he, he lives and dies before the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So because Jesus is truly human, he experienced death at the cross, and he did it as old, all Old Testament saints do. He descended to Sheol, according to Scripture, and proclaimed victory over the grave by liberating the souls of the righteous and bringing them to heaven. Thus, when the church-age believers died... They do not go to Sheol anymore, but rather to heaven to be with the Lord forever. This was Paul's theme over and over when the saints during the church age die. He said that they will be present with the Lord. Jesus ascended into heaven, which is where the souls of believers, this side of the cross, go when they leave their body at death. So according to scripture in the New Testament, uh, which agrees with the old, I'm not trying to make it a contradiction here, but we're trying to see how the authors are writing the same idea, is that unbelievers in the New Testament go to Hades, which is the same as Sheol, but New um, Testament, so the church-age believers, go to heaven, and this is because of the cross. So I wanted to give us a little visual aid, because that's a lot of words and content, but I'm a very visual person. So if we were to represent the realm of Sheol and Hades This way, we would say that there's two sections that Scripture describes. There's a section of torment, and there's a section referred to as paradise. Jesus said on the cross to the thief, he said, Today you will be with me in paradise. And it seems like, according to Scripture, that Jesus came and he descended to Sheol, or Hades, according to Scripture. And he actually gets the keys, right? He has the keys over death and sin, and he means he has ownership. And what he does is he takes... Um, he captives free and he proclaims victory over those that 
are in torment. So this is what happens at the cross. And the reason I'm covering it now, it sounds like a cosmic event, but it's actually in the past. It's something that has happened and is why in the New Testament, when, when Hades or hell is referred to, it's always talking about torment because that's all that's left. Does that make sense? Get a couple head nods? Okay, cool. So next we want to talk about this description. So um, there are key passages to understand this conscious and temporary torment that happens. So for unbelievers that are in Hades, um, it's referred to as torment in Luke 16. So I'm not going to have time to read the whole passage, but if you're taking notes, please do look up Luke 16, 19 through 31. Um, it's a passage where Jesus is giving um, a parable, and he's talking about a rich man in Lazarus who lived in this life. And Lazarus had a horrible life, and the rich man had a great life, but they both die. And they go to, it says in that passage, Hades. It says they're in Hades. And um, what happens here is Jesus is describing these events as really happening, and he's saying this is a description of what goes on. So it helps us to understand, we kind of need to put this in the seems-like category, but it helps us to understand the description of this intermediate state referred to as Hades. The rich man, when he was in Hades, said, I am in anguish in this flame. That's a conscious statement of experience. He knew by looking across this great um, chasm, this great distance, he knew Abraham and Lazarus, and he remembered his five brothers back on earth. And it seems like Abraham even appealed to the rich man's memory. He says in that passage, remember, child, or child, remember that you had good things back on earth, and Lazarus had bad things at that time. And he's pleading because he wants his brothers to know about this. And he says, ultimately, he's like, even if somebody came back from the dead to tell them, they wouldn't believe. They need to, um, he points them to Moses and the prophets to believe what God has revealed to them already. So in this, we need to understand, according to Revelation 20 as well, um, that this is a temporary destination. So not only is it conscious, but according to Revelation 20, um, I'll just read Revelation 20, 13 and 14 says, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. A fire. So it seems like, according to Scripture, that Hades isn't this final state yet. Um, there's a, still a judgment to be had, and this place of Hades is going to be thrown into the lake of fire, and there's going to be um, a final judgment for those that are temporarily held in torment there. But what about um, the New Testament believer? So we understand um, that those are in Hades are in torment. For the New Testament believer, heaven is actually described as a place of rest, of peace. Heaven is used approximately 600 times in the Bible, and the word in Hebrew literally means the heights, and the common Greek term uh, that's used is, is means raised up or lofty. And the Bible uses these terms to refer to three different places. Briefly, we'll mention the first and second heaven, and we'll talk about the third heaven, which is this intermediate state. The first heaven is referred to sometimes as the atmospheric heaven. This is uh, referring to the sky. Um, it's referencing this region of breathable air in the atmosphere that covers the earth. The second one um, would be the planetary heaven. That would be the second heaven. And this is where the sun, the moon, the stars, and planets exist. But this intermediate state is referred to as the third heaven. And you can call it the intermediate heaven. Most refer to it as the third heaven. And it's an intermediate state of existence. This is the place where God dwells uh, with his angels and deceased saints. According to scripture... Uh, scripture testifies that this third heaven is God's dwelling in 1 Kings 8. He says this, 
but he also indicates that it's not containing him, right? God is omnipresent. So it's not, um, he says, um, Solomon is saying, behold, the heaven and the heights of the heaven cannot contain you, how much less the house that I've built, referring to the temple at the time. So God is always everywhere, but heaven is specifically and uniquely God's home. Um, it's his command post, the center of operation for his universal kingdom. And this is where God's throne is and where he is to be worshipped. Scripture teaches that deceased brothers and sisters in Christ are in this third heaven. And the author of Hebrews indicates it when uh, he writes in Hebrews, Hebrews 12, he uses the phrase, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And Luke ten twenty, um, the author there also says, their names are written in heaven. And Paul, encouragement to the church of Philippi, calls them citizens. Their citizenship is in heaven. And Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So there's this, there's this sure hope of heaven for the believer, especially in the church age. But what is this intermediate heaven to be like? Well, we would refer to Revelation chapter 6. Again, similar to Luke 16, for the unbeliever in this intermediate state, we would reference Revelation 6, 9 through 11, as this intermediate uh, description of saints. So let me read that passage for us. Um, John writes, he says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. In heaven, these saints are self-aware, according to this passage, and have knowledge of these world circumstances that are going on. They were mindful of the distinction also between heaven and earth. There wasn't this confusion or this sort of absent-mindedness of earth to just say, well, we'll just forget about earth and we're at heaven and that's all that matters. They care about God's justice on the earth. They also don't see heaven as their final destiny. Even in heaven, the saints are longing for justice on the earth, which will come at the return of Jesus with his saints, which we will see in cosmic eschatology. So, to understand and summarize this, key words for us to know about this intermediate state are conscious or aware and temporary. Okay, conscious and temporary. And the common made mistakes um, are based on these two points as well. Um, so a commonly known heresy would be soul sleep, um, where people think that um, basically when you die, you're just unconscious or unaware, which is not according to Scripture, not what we see in these passages we've looked at today. Also, um, some would say that, that they think about, and this is probably most commonly misunderstood, is that we think about this intermediate state as the final state. Uh, but there's more to happen. There's more to God's story that he reveals to us to unfold. This is not the final state. But according to God's word, um, unbelievers are in Hades in torment for their sin against a just and holy God, but they're awaiting resurrection to final judgment. And believers are in heaven with their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, now. And they're awaiting the promised resurrection and glorification. So after the intermediate state, we want to talk about this topic according to scripture of resurrection. Let's talk about first the resurrection for believers. And here's several passages for you to jot down to continue with your study as well that we'll look at today. God created human beings as both body and soul. Physical death results in separation 
of a person's body and their soul. But this, is, uh, this parting doesn't last forever. According to Scripture, everyone is destined for a resurrection of the body, fit for their eternal destiny. And John 5, 28 and 29 makes this clear when Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. In a different lesson, we'll focus on the timing and the stages of God's resurrection program. But today, we're simply going to focus on what resurrection means for both believers and unbelievers. First, let's talk about believers. Believers in God are destined for a resurrected body. By definition, resurrection involves the body coming to life and reuniting with the soul. So Job knew this truth when he spoke in Job 19, 25, and 26. He said, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet my flesh shall see God, he said, indicating that um, an idea of resurrection. And the prophets also testified to resurrection of the body. Isaiah 26, 19, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. The longest portion of scripture actually on the nature of the resurrected body for believers is in 1 Corinthians 15, specifically verses 35 through 49. And to summarize this passage, um, Paul describes our glorified bodies as imperishable, meaning imperishable, which means there won't be any decay, uh, that it won't die or um, that um, it won't perish like our current bodies are destined to because of the curse. Our future bodies will not be tainted by the shame of sin. And he said that they would be powerful, not weak. And he said that they would be spiritual bodies, not natural bodies. And then he actually compares it to Jesus. He says, Jesus is the prototype of our glorified bodies, while our natural bodies are modeled actually after Adam. So when Paul uses this term spiritual bodies, though, he doesn't mean an immaterial or a ghost-like body. Rather, he means in this passage is that we are spiritual because the source is God. God is going to, by the means of resurrection and glorification, give us this new spiritual body. And we know that Paul means this because he talks about this idea in other places as well. So Romans 8.23, he mentions the phrase, the redemption of our bodies. And in Philippians 3.21, he says that, our, uh, we, that Christ, when he comes, will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. So this idea of a physical body is clear in Scripture. Just as Jesus had a tangible, physical existence when he rose from the dead, so too will his followers. Since the final destiny of believers is the new earth, our resurrected bodies will be perfectly suited for everlasting life on the new earth. What an amazing future for those who have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. So that is, in summary, the resurrection for believers, but Scripture also talks about the resurrection for unbelievers. Scripture gives uh, fewer details concerning the specific nature of the unbeliever's resurrected body, but let's look at what we do know God has said. Um, Unbelievers uh, will experience a tangible bodily resurrection, and we saw this earlier in John chapter 5 when Jesus said both will happen, both for the righteous and the unrighteous. But Daniel 2, uh, 12, chapter 2 also indicates this when he says that they will awake to shame and everlasting contempt. 
So even in the Old Testament, this idea of resurrection of the dead is mentioned. And, um, and both of these passages actually indicate that they will come out of the grave. Secondly, we can conclude that their resurrected bodies will be suited to experience the lake of fire, which is their eternal destination. Uh, Revelation 20, verse 15 says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Just as believers will receive a body to live on the new earth, which is an actual place, so unbelievers will receive a body fit to experience the lake of fire, which is also real. Revelation 14, 10, and 11, um, I'll read for us as well. He will, <clears throat> says, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Describing this is the judgment of the wicked. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They will have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Scripture depicts an unending, fiery judgment, a miserable and eternal conscious torment without any rest for those who abide there, a place often what we refer to as hell. After this final resurrection, everyone arrives at their final destination, um, an eternal destination. But let's look at the next state. This is the eternal state. And let's look, first of all, at the eternal state for unbelievers. The Bible, as we've seen, presents this eternal reality of hell. Hell is a real place of burning torment for unrepentant sinners forever. It's real. It matters. This is what Scripture says. And Jesus spoke of hell during his ministry here on earth on several occasions. For example, in Mark 9, 43, he said, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. This term that Jesus used is, that's translated hell in this passage is the Greek word Gehenna, which occurs 12 times in the New Testament. This term relates to the Valley of Hinnom on the south and east sides of Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, this was a place where the children uh, were sacrificed to the false god Molech in 2 Kings 23 and Jeremiah 7. This awful place of fiery doom was used by Jesus to symbolize the future place of punishment for the wicked. These references show that hell is real and that people should strive to avoid this horrible place. Other passages in scripture don't use this word, um, but describe the place that we have already seen several times in passages, but I'm going to reference a couple more. Jesus said in reference to final judgment in Matthew 25, 41, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Scripture defines hell by three negative consequences that are everlasting. And we need to make sure we understand all three of them according to Scripture. Scripture says that, the, that it's described as punishment, destruction, and banishment. And not one of these concepts can accurately explain all of what hell is, but rather, Scripture puts all of these words together to present a multifaceted understanding of why hell is so terrible. The first one we'll look at is punishment. In Luke 12, uh, 47 48, um, there's um, a, a parable where Jesus is referencing a severe beating and a light beating, both for the wicked, 
saying that this, there's proportion to the judgment that's going to happen. This is punishment. And in this passage, it indicates that the wicked are punished and receive retribution in accordance to their deeds. God's punishment is not a vindictive one, but a righteous retribution for their personal life of rebellion. Scripture also talks about hell as destruction, as we saw earlier in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. He said, punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Destruction involves the concepts of ruin and waste. Those who die in unbelief have lost any opportunity to live a life that mattered for God, and they are rebels against God, and according to Scripture, loss and ruin are their fate. Thirdly, Scripture refers to banishment. In Revelation 22, 14, and 15, John writes, Blessed are those who wash their robes, those, who have, uh, those that they may have the right of the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. And he continues to contrast it in verse 15. He says, outside are the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. That is banishment. Those who physically die while being spiritually dead will be exiles. They'll be banished from the blessing of the kingdom of God and are denied access to the glories of the new earth. God, as king over all, has removed them with no hope of everlasting blessing with his presence for eternity. I think it's important in this lesson also for us to reference some errors that come up in regards to this doctrine of hell. We need to understand how people get this wrong according to scripture, and one would be uh, universalism. This view affirms that all people will be saved. This heresy comes in different forms. Um, Some would say that um, when Christ died on the cross, he atoned for everyone's sins, no matter what, no matter if they believe or don't. Um, some would say they get a second chance after death. Um, after death, they get a kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card, and they, everybody's going to repent at that point. Um, and some would say that um, it's just a temporary punishment, that after a while, God's supposed to be gracious and kind, and he obviously lets them back into heaven after they've kind of paid their dues for a bit. But this clearly is opposed to Scripture, as we've already seen already. The story does not end well for everyone according to God's word. Belief in Christ's finished work on the cross is necessary to enter into glory. And those who don't believe are set to face judgment for their sins against their creator forever. So universalism is clearly wrong according to Scripture Also, we would say that annihilationism is unbiblical according to Scripture. This view affirms that the wicked will cease to exist, either at physical death, at the coming judgment, or after a finite period of punishment in hell. This view thinks that the terms forever or eternal that we saw in these passages simply indicates the permanent nature of their non-existence. But the biblical language of um, eternal fire, um, of the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, of they will have no rest day and night, shows that this is an unending reality, not something that ceases at a certain point. Even the term no rest um, there in Revelation 14 is indicating a continuing self-consciousness. And we need to note that Scripture parallels also the eternality of hell and heaven when Jesus said in Matthew 25, 46, and these, referring to the wicked, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Those ideas are paralleled. If, if heaven is not eternal, 
then that would make hell not eternal. But if hell is eternal and heaven eternal, that is consistent with what Scripture describes for both groups. Thirdly, we would mention um, spiritual punishment. This view states that the lost will experience eternal conscious punishment, but that it is not a physical punishment in a literal place of fire. They would say that fire in Scripture is not literal, but rather represents alienation from God. However, this view fails to adequately account for the reality that both the righteous and the wicked experience bodily resurrections and are granted bodies fit for their eternal existence. If the lake of fire is only metaphorical, then what about the new earth? If it's just metaphorical and not physical, um, then would it mean that both are just not real, that our real bodies don't matter, that physical form doesn't matter? Based on the passages today that we've seen in Scripture, it's plain and the meaning of Scripture is apparent that both the new earth and the lake of fire are real eternal destinies that after the resurrection of our physical bodies, reunited with our souls and our spirits, is a reality for both the believer and the unbeliever. Lastly, let's mention briefly the eternal state, the eternal state for believers. And we're just going to scratch the surface of this because in the cosmic section, we're actually going to talk a whole lesson on uh, the new heaven and the new earth. Peter says it this way in 2 Peter 3.13, But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. John wrote about this in Revelation 21 when he saw the new Jerusalem will come down from heaven upon the new earth. And he said that this place is where God will dwell with his people. He would wipe away their tears and remove all negative remnants of the previously cursed world. How the story ends for believers is that the new heaven will come down and on the new earth and we will dwell with King Jesus forever. There will be no sickness. There will be no hunger. There will be no trouble, no tragedy, just absolute joy and eternal blessing and praise to our great creator, our great savior, and our great sustainer. That is a day that we look forward to with joy, when we have a righteous king who will have a righteous people in a righteous place, and we will praise him for his great righteousness. In summary, um, and as we mentioned um, our resources that we use for this. Um, We definitely refer to Biblical Doctrine by John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew. Very helpful resource. It's a biggie, so make sure you got room on your bookshelf for it, but it's a very helpful tool as you continue to study and to dive into God's Word. For me, I know this week it was really impressed upon my heart, these eternal realities, and it changes the way you see life. So take time to meditate on these truths because it impacts the way you talk, it impacts the way you treat people, it impacts the way you read God's Word. So let these, let these realities soak in, and it will have a, a large impact on the way you live this brief life that God's given us by his grace. Next week, we'll continue our study in eschatology on part three, and uh, J.D. will be talking about the return of Christ. And then finally, also, if you have any questions, please do um, email those to us. We do plan to have a Q&A um, towards the end of this section. So if you have questions, we'd love to get those ahead of time uh, so we can help make it a profitable discussion during that Q&A. Uh, But for now, you're dismissed.